Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about Live and Let Die, starring Roger Moore, Yafet Koto, Jane Seymour, David Hedison, Bernard Lee, and directed by Guy Hamilton. This is Brock, James Brock. Stuart in L.A. And this is Arnie saying, we've got a job to do, we've got to do it well, let's Live and Let Podcast. Nice. We are now up to, believe it or not, the eighth James Bond film in our retrospective series. Is that it? We're only at eight? How many do we have? It's nine if you count that Casino Royale, which no one really does. Which I'm not. Yes, it is the ninth episode in our series, the eighth official James Bond, and the first of Roger Moore. We are officially starting the Roger Moore era of James Bond, and what an era I hope it is. (laughs) For Arnie's sake, I hope it is something that we all enjoy. You know, I'm always reminded at the mention of Roger Moore of the infamous Amy Winehouse lyric from her song, You Know I'm No Good. I don't know if you know the song, but it's something to the effect of by the time I hit the door, you tear me down like Roger Moore. I think she's on to something there. It's trendy to tear down Roger Moore. I feel like he is the hated Bond, maybe partly because he was in Spice World. (laughs) He was in Spice World. Oh, I didn't have that on the list, but I I could add it. Well, Cannonball Run also was around the same time as he was Bond, and that was a big deal for me when I was seven years old to see him in James Bond there. And in the Pink Panther movie he did, too, I was like, hey, James Bond is there. And that was kind of cool when you were a kid, right? Yeah, well, Connery did Zardos. They all have some irreputable resume additions. Looking strictly at his Bond work, you know, I always kind of liked more because of when I came into Bond as a child. He was the Bond that was in movie theaters. When it was time to watch a Bond movie, in movie theaters, that was the James Bond I grew up with. And so I'm hoping to like him. I feel like his reputation is that of an imposter, a clown, not as macho as Connery, not as good. But I'm hoping that I will be pleasantly surprised and that my childhood love for him will carry over at least a little bit. And I'm in a similar boat, Stuart, because growing up, Roger Moore was who I knew of as Bond. And when I decided I was going to try to get into Bond in high school, I kept reading everybody says Sean Connery is the best Bond. And people would tell me Sean Connery is the best Bond. But the movies I saw more of were Roger Moore's. And I'm really looking forward to the end of this retrospective series. First of all, because I really haven't recommended too many of these films. (laughs) But second of all... (laughs) 
just want it over, frankly. Hey, I can feel you. You're, you know what? I, I was in your shoes when we were like doing Punisher episodes. I'm like, how many more effing Marvel do we got to do? Not recommend. How many times do I got to say it? At least the Marvel movies offered something totally different every three to four times. Here, all I get is a different actor every three to four times. But coming into this retrospective series, having not seen any Bond films in a long time, Roger Moore was who I thought of when I thought of his Bond. So I wonder if, when all is said and done, he may be my favorite Bond. And I'm coming to it exactly the same way you guys are coming to it, for the exact same reasons. We all three grew up with Roger Moore. But the difference here is, for me being the Bond fan, and I, of course, have watched much more Roger Moore James Bond than any other James Bond because I can't even tell you how many times I've watched Octopussy and A View to a Kill. But what's fun about talking about this with you two now is I have gone back and watched Roger Moore as an adult, as an older man. And I have had the issue of certain movies I liked, I didn't like anymore, certain things about Roger Moore's James Bond. My tastes have changed. And it's really kind of fun to realize what you like about a certain actor in the role. To me, Roger Moore is James Bond for most of my life, and I always think of him first as well. But that's the beauty of this role. Kind of like Batman, because everyone has an opinion on who plays Batman the best. Well, everyone has an opinion on James Bond, and this is when it really starts to get heated when you talk about, for a long time anyway, between Moore and Connery. Yeah, I think Moore just has the sensibilities that kids are going to like. I mean, there's just something more amusing about him. There's just something more child-friendly. I always thought of Connery as a little bit gruff. As I've grown up, that was actually more appealing. I want more gruff, action-oriented Bond. Well, actually, Stuart, that was very much intentional. What they try to do with Roger Moore is because Sean Connery's shadow loomed large over George Lazenby, and he came back afterwards, they did a lot to change the role of James Bond on purpose. Now, Roger Moore actually was considered by the producers back in 1961 when they were originally thinking about how to cast James Bond. He was never offered, never approached, but he was in the back of Broccoli's head. Something cool I found out while watching Live and Let Die commentaries this week was that Roger Moore was actually informally approached after You Only Live Twice, and they were ready to go with him before they signed him. They were prepping Cambodia locations in 1967, and then civil unrest broke out in Cambodia in 1967. Oops, a little war. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can think that that would have been such a great idea. And the movie they were prepping was Man with the Golden Gun. Just a little ah. piece of trivia. So when they decided to scrap that and start all over again, Roger Moore was unavailable. They went with Lazenby. We talked all about that a couple episodes ago. And then when Lazenby fell through, Roger Moore was busy doing another television show after The Saint. They brought Connery back anyway. And once Connery's out for good, Roger Moore was first on the list. They went right to him. They signed him up and got him for Live and Let Die. So quite an amazing history with him always being in the back of their minds. And if you think about Connery and what he brought to Bond, I mean, can you imagine if they had Roger Moore and his sensibilities right from the get-go? That'd be an entirely different series. Yeah, the mind boggles. But live and die. I haven't seen it in probably 25 years. Me too. I haven't seen it in a long time. Although this is one that if it's on TV, I might turn it on. But 
other than seeing it five minutes here, five minutes there, this is my first time sitting down and watching it beginning to end since the early 90s. Actually, this is one of the James Bonds I had to go back on purpose and watch for the first time. I just don't remember anything of Live and Let Die growing up with my mother and ABC, nothing. So back in the early 20s was the first time I've seen it, and I've seen it quite a few times since. But it's not one I typically go back to on purpose. Do you go back to it on accident? <laughs> <laughs> well, Arnie, you said if it's on television, you'll go back and watch it. And of course, you've said this before when you have Halloween films or Friday the 13th films. If it's on, I'll turn it on, see where it is in the movie. And depending on where it is in the movie, I might keep it on for five minutes. Otherwise, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. I keep flipping channels. Well, why don't we give people a plot? While spying on the ruler of San Monique, a small country in the Caribbean, three MI6 agents are killed, so James Bond is tasked with investigating the mysterious Dr. Kananga to find out why. In New York, he meets with CIA agent Felix Leiter, and Bond discovers Harlem is run by Mr. Big, a gangster who relies heavily on the Council of Solitaire, his tarot-reading psychic. Bond heads to San Monique to investigate further and becomes involved with Rosie Carver, a CIA agent who also works for Big. She's quickly offed and Bond then sleeps with Solitaire, but when Solitaire loses her virginity, her powers of divination are gone as well. This royally angers Mr. Big and the gangster reveals his true identity. Dr. Kanaga and Mr. Big are the same person. And they have plans to flood the USA with free heroin, putting the native mobsters out of business and grabbing a monopoly on the US heroin market. It's Obamacare! <laughs> I knew that was a bad idea. That socialized heroin program must stop. <laughs> Several attempts are made by Kananga and his henchmen, the unkillable voodoo priest Baron Samdi, and the claw-handed Teehee Johnson, involving a big car chase and a bigger boat chase, and in the end, Bond escapes all the traps and kills Kananga. And then, as he attempts to enjoy solitary time with Solitaire... Teehee attacks once more and is thrown out of a train window as credits roll. Now, right off the bat, one of the things we've analyzed with each new era is this gun barrel sequence. And I've kind of chuckled to myself on all the previous ones that James Bond is wearing a bowler, like a proper 50s gentleman right out of the mystery game Clue. And I like Roger Moore already because there's his hat, what's his hurry? It's gone. No hat. I'm happy. I am not a fan of the older aesthetic anyone who's heard us review batman 66 thing from another world hell even the 70s texas chainsaw massacre knows i'm a more modern taste and already i'm liking to see a james bond with a more modern fashion in silhouette if nothing else <laughs> it's all about a hat for you okay it really mattered i have written in my notes every podcast stupid hat stupid hat lazenby came in he still got the hat i'm wondering what he's gonna toss on the coat rack now maybe money penny she wishes <laughs> <laughs> but then we have the opening sequence and i've mentioned it in one of the earlier ones i can't remember which movie but it's not james bond i really liked how in on her majesty's secret service they introduced lazenby it's a new Bond. We just get it out of the way up front. It's kind of like an Iron Man 2 when they replace Rhodey and they just deal with it and make a comment to the audience and move on. Here, our entire opening is Bondless, almost like they're afraid to give us the money shot and show us more. 
And I'm a little concerned because I postulated last time a theory that had been told to me about Bond being in America. We started the UN building in New York. Bond is not going to be as good if he's in America, or so I've been told. So I'm a little worried as to how this is going to go for more when he shows up. I actually enjoy the opening sequence with the three murders. I think it's a wonderful way to start the movie off properly because they really rely on the plot with these three. Now, I'm not a big fan of a linked pre-credit sequence usually, but here, the three different locales and the colorful parade, I kind of was interested in where is this going right up until after the song and into the first scene. It actually worked for me. I'd like it, but it's one of those things in retrospect, I ask you guys, having seen the whole movie now, is there any reason that they kill these people? To get James Bond in, it's the MacGuffin James Bond is chasing. I was reminded very much of Dr. No. This is the same MacGuffin used, and in fact a very similar way as in Dr. No where you have these people seemingly going about their daily, somewhat unusual activities, be it begging for money as blind mice or having a funeral dirge with a jazz band, and then they kill an MI6 agent. Because we've seen Dr. No so recently, I'm going in and I don't remember much about this movie, especially the opening, but I'm like, they're gonna kill a man. Yeah, I love the jazz funeral. I love the, whose funeral is it? Yours. And the guy gets knifed and they put the coffin over him and the music tempo changes and they start in the dancing part of the jazz funeral. All that's fun. And I guess I can understand in general, hey, we're killing any agents that are snooping around us. But what did the guy at the UN do? <laughs> yeah, I can't make a connection on why the UN guy got killed. All I can think of is that he was questioning Kananga off screen, but we never learned why. Mm-mm. But it's just a way to get Bond into this plot. It's a hook. It's not a very good one because if Mr. Big is so all-knowing and all-powerful with these tarot cards and everything, and his wonderful plan to give us all free heroin, which I'm pro-free heroin, I might want to say. <laughs> he doesn't come across as the worst guy. <laughs> I think he'd just be a little smarter than this. Maybe give these guys his first sample of free heroin. Yeah, the plot to hide his big secret in the connection between Kananga and Mr. Big. You don't kill three MI6 agents to try to cover it up. It doesn't make much sense at all, but... You nail it on the head, Arnie. It really is just an excuse to get Bond involved in this entire plot. And it's a typical kind of way to do it, especially in the Moore era, just getting an excuse to get 007 on the case. Because as we'll see as we go through the movie, the MacGuffin really isn't the driving force of this movie. It may be the plot, it may be the reason, but I don't think it's the driving force of this movie. And having read the book and already reviewed it over at Books and Nachos, Brock, you and I are covering all the Ian Fleming works. This was the second book. I've already read it. And I got to say, I'll take any plot they give me over the one that was in that book. I mean, it all had to do with pirate's gold and it was ludicrous. You can go listen to that show here, but I'm up for a new interpretation of it. I like the vibe that they're going for here. I like the vibe overall. Right away, we're in an era that I can enjoy more. The 60s were just something that I wasn't alive at all during. I don't know that much about beyond the big historical events, but the 70s I was alive during. I watched the TV during. The high-waisted pants, the giant afros, 
everything that's going on in these opening scenes, I like. And then we get to the voodoo, and we don't talk voodoo much on Now Playing. Maybe we need a voodoo retrospective. I'm a fan of voodoo. I love voodoo plots. I love all that mysticism. My honeymoon was in New Orleans, so I could do the graveyard tour and the ghost tour and get a tarot reading from a fat guy in a sweaty alley. It was a great little hook for me personally to mix both the 70s culture and this voodoo culture in this film. Before the credits ever rolled, I'm having a good time with this movie. I agree. It's a horror movie, per se, or at least as close to one as Bond is ever going to get. And I grew up on horror. I love horror. You're right. You bring in African tiki fetish dolls and all of this tarot card readings. It's very exciting. And the black exploitation thing is fun, too. They're trend jumping now. I've got to say, up to this point, Bond was kind of its own thing. And now, as they've reached, as you pointed out, an eighth installment, they're looking for ways to revive idolize it. So they're going to genres that were popular of the day. And these early scenes, particularly in New York, I'm getting a lot of French connection on this, a movie that had just won the Oscar, and I'm getting a lot of black exploitation, Shaft, Superfly, all of that great stuff. I'm totally digging the vibe. Yeah, and that was completely on purpose, as you pointed out, completely, where Bond was a trendsetter, now he's a trend follower. And the big issue they had, according to all the producers, was because of Shaft and because of all these black exploitation movies that have African-American characters in a positive light, how are you going to portray villain characters in a Bond movie this way? And they were really worried about that, so they went out of their way to make sure that the villains were likable and had a lot of personality and color. And not color meaning... <laughs> you know what I mean. So... <laughs> So that was very much on purpose. The, also, the tone of the movie has changed. You guys have picked up on the fun of the voodoo stuff. Although I have to say, Arnie, I can count on my hands the amount of times I've seen voodoo in a movie and it's used well. We talked about this a little bit with Chucky. It just seemed like it was an excuse to get the soul in the doll and you have to go with it. But it seems to me that voodoo can be used poorly more often than it's used good in a lot of different medias. Do you disagree with that or do you find it's used pretty well? All I got to say is I feel like Golden Child took a lot from this. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there are a couple seminal stories to me when it comes to voodoo, both from my teen years. One is a computer game named Gabriel Knight, Sins of the Father, and the other is The Serpent and the Rainbow. And those are a couple voodoo stories that I return to again and again. And yes, it can be used really poorly, and when it's used, as in Chucky, I roll my eyes, but... When you go and commit to it and you've got the people in the complete white face and not just a tiki doll and a ritual, if you go beyond the Brady Bunch Hawaii vacation, I usually can at least find some enjoyment there. Okay. Not only do we get a different tone right off the bat with the opening scenes before the credits, but the first scene we see Bond in, we get the idea this movie is going to be very punny. And when they introduce Roger Moore, when M comes to his house, because, again, to make sure they don't have comparisons, they purposely did not bring Bond to M's office. 
Anyone who's listened to Now Playing knows that I might be a fan of puns, if you want to reference our Howard the Duck podcast, perhaps. So, I'm down again. And, like I say, Roger Moore is my bond. So, while audiences, when this movie came out, may be, like, going out on a date with a new girlfriend and seeing if you like her as much as the old girlfriend, for me, it's like a high school reunion here, and, again, loving it. Loving the watch, loving the girl in the closet, loving Money Penny, who has aged and Bond has not. <laughs> so it seems like she's in a more motherly role, or big sister at the very least. Actually, it's probably worth pointing out that Roger Moore is 45 years old when they're shooting this. He is a middle-aged man, and I want to give props to the guy. He's got a lot of youthful vitality. I don't know whether he's just excited to be here or whatever. He's better than I remembered him to be, and he seems 10 years younger than he actually is. I remember the Roger Moore years being frail, like a lot of cutting to the stunt guy, a lot of getting around the fact that you have a middle to aging leading man as your star, but in this moment here, I think he's pretty good. The whole movie out, I'm not saying he doesn't rely on some stunts when he's jumping over crocodiles, but for the most part, <laughs> I think he's got the pizzazz to pull it off. I was shocked at how good Roger Moore is here. You're absolutely right, and I completely agree. The first time I saw this movie in my 20s, I had the exact same reaction about Roger Moore and how youthful he was and the playful. What I like about the way he says a lot of the puns in this movie... A lot of them, not all of them, and especially in the scene is he plays it completely flat. He plays it straight, but he's not playing it straight. He's playing with these funny lines. And proof in the pudding is how Money Penny and how M work off of him. And what a great button in the end of the scene with the magnetic watch with the zipper. It really sets a tone of what kind of bond we're having as well. A horny one? Wait, that's the same as always. <laughs> <laughs> But I do want to say, the very next scene where we're on the FDR drive and he's in Harlem, what I love about Roger Moore in this movie is he does all the punny, but he also has, to me, very much James Bond intense moments. Well, he actually shows that he is the secret agent James Bond, that he can throw down when he needs to. And that's very important to me in Roger Moore because he has the reputation of being you know, so flippant and so funny. Roger Moore can bring it. He's different than Sean Connery in the way he does it, but he certainly can bring it. I feel like the script could have been written for Connery. Moore's going to give you a different line delivery, but it's the same James Bond. I do not feel this Bond is out of character, and later as writers start to write for Moore, it may change. But here, I feel no character whiplash. The environment is what's changed. The actor has changed, but the character seems to be the same to me. And you're right wrote a generic Bond character for that very reason because they had no idea who was playing him when the screenplay was being written. And it probably helps that Moore's already played spies for a decade now. I've never seen The Saint or any of his other spy shows. I would hazard a guess that he's probably pulling a, as much from his work on those TV spy shows as he is from studying Connery. I don't get a lot of Connery here. I think he knows he doesn't have the heft and the commanding presence of Connery. He doesn't have the build of Connery. But he's kept his smirk, and he's kept doing what has worked for him for the past decade, and I'm willing to go with it. I gotta say, I am a little sad, though. No cue this movie. He gets the watch, but it's him that gives him the gadget this time. Yeah, I agree. I'm not very happy with Q not being here, but it's kind of nice they figured out another way to do it. 
you know, it wasn't too bad. It was actually made a lot of sense, and it worked completely on showing off the watch. I don't miss Q. Q is whatever to me, but I like Q's workshop. I like all the stuff that happens in the background while Q is giving Bond his stuff. But here, there's enough going on in this movie that until you mentioned it, Stuart, I didn't even notice it. Well, yes, he has a lot of other people around him. What we're missing maybe on the ally side, they're overrunning with villains here. There are a lot of bad guy henchmen list and starting with Yafet. Golden headphones for Mr. Kato. Not only that, but he has been featured in a series that is near and dear to each one of our hearts. Brock, you're the big Bond fan. Arnie, you're the big Freddy fan. He was in Nightmare 6. And of course, he was one of the seven in Alien. So, yeah, we all have a reason to be in love with this guy. <laughs> totally forgot he was in Nightmare on Elm Street. And I like him here. I mean, I do know him first and foremost as Doc from Freddy's Dead. And he brings a lot of Mr. Big to his role as Doc. But I like his affable presence he is a wonderfully intelligent, malevolent villain. He's not a supervillain who's going to start firing lasers at you. He's a businessman who operates outside the law. He's a mobster. I like him. And I didn't know he was Mr. Big. I really thought they were two different characters. And I just thought Mr. Big, I couldn't tell if it was bad makeup or if he'd had some bad burns. Like, you know, he was a burn victim, but I didn't know they were both him. Oh, well, I was on to that one, but yeah. I agree. I like him here. It's just nice to see one without Blofeld. I mean, we've had a lot of Blofeld lately, and I feel like they kept getting worse. Like, it's nice to have a new villain and one that is at least as good as Goldfinger. Given how Blofeld looked last time, I'm surprised they didn't go, Yafit Kodo, you are Blofeld. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, Arnie, I have seen this movie before, obviously, and I know the connection between the two people, but I can't shake from my mind how it's completely obvious it's the same person. I'm having trouble understanding how you didn't see it. You said the makeup was bad, sure, but it just really seems that it's the same person the whole time, and the only person who hasn't figured it out is Felix Leiter. Well, put me there with Felix. There are so many henchmen going around, and I'm trying to follow. All right, they're in New York. They're in the Caribbean. There's New Orleans. There's this restaurant. There's so many guys going around here, and I couldn't figure out what the dictator of this island had to do with crime lord Mr. Big in Harlem. When he took off the mask, I had a big aha moment. So it fooled me for once. And yeah, I've seen this movie before, but I remembered nothing. Thing. So I enjoyed that reveal. It was wonderful to get to experience it. But he does have a lot of colorful henchmen. Teehee with that claw is pretty fun. Again, that took me back to Dr. No, a replay of the crushing hand, but I kind of prefer the claw versus I just can't type very quickly, Dr. No. It's a little more Captain Hook this time. It was taken by a gator or a crog. And Whisper, who speaks in whispers. I like that character's look very much. The fat guy with too tight of pants who wears colors he shouldn't? Yeah. You like that look? I, <laughs> I look, Arnie. What are you implying? I don't <laughs> I like the way he presents himself. I like the way when he walks in with the champagne later on, he's kind of a fun character actor. I really liked it. He's the one I didn't like, honestly. Out of all of them, Whisper's the one who I thought was a little too obvious, but the other two, once I realized there were only two, <laughs> I really liked them both. 
And it's probably worth pointing out here, this is where we have to at least bring up the racial stuff that's going on in this movie. Every black person is in on it. It's not just these colorful henchmen. These are the ones that play closest to Mr. Big. But literally, from every cabbie in Harlem, (laughs) any black person that you experience is actually working for Mr. Big. And that's mm, a little unfortunate, I gotta say. I was upset about the fact that they only give one... One token black CIA agent. He's killed in another funeral scene. And then they have Rosie, who is the first African-American Bond girl. And she turns out to be on the grift as well. Oh, come on. You're you're missing a big one. Another Dr. No callback. Quirrell Jr. He's not in on it. Oh, that's true. That is true. <laughs> I, yes, you're right. Quarrel Jr. is here. I'm not sure if he's the child of the man from the movie 10 years ago or whether he's the brother or I, I don't know. He looks just as old as the other guy, but I honestly looked up to see if it was the same actor and they just took Jr. and put it on there. Now, of course, Live and Let Die, the book came before the book, Dr. No. It was the same character. Here, they could kind of screwed up because they killed them in the first movie and what do you do? I mean, there are zombies here. They could bring him back from the dead, but we already got one. So, uh, yes, he's Coral Jr. Okay, I stand corrected. But I think you guys know what I mean here. Yeah, it really I, is yeah. a conspiracy of black people. And it's much more of a problem in the book. But here, I can't help shaking the fact that, well, gosh, it's James Bond versus the black people. You know, I didn't see it that way, though, because this is such a the Jeffersons portrayal of black people calling white folks honkies. And all of that, and there doesn't feel any real racial tension. And maybe it's because I'm in the 21st century and in a post-race America, I like to think. To me, it was good guys versus bad guys. I knew they were black, but again, until you pointed this out, I didn't realize what you're saying. Everybody was in on it. I just took that as a James Bond conspiracy. It's a trope that everybody's in on it. Again, back to Dr. No. I saw a lot of Dr. No in this. I think, though, when he gets into the bar in Harlem and when we get to New Orleans, the racial tension stuff does come up a little bit, but it certainly is light. It's a light touch on it. And when Bond gets put into the alley, there are no alleys in New York, but it might be an empty lot. Which say it's, let's say it's an abandoned lot in New York. Uh, so there are racial tensions. Things are actually is a, a line. The African-American CIA agent says a nice disguise, the only white man, something like that. And they bring it up right there, then let it go. And I see what you mean, Stuart. If you watch the scene again with the walkie-talkies, though, in New York, one of the guys in the walkie-talkie is a CIA guy who we don't know is a CIA guy at the time. And so they try to misdirect you with one of those people, like the lady at the voodoo shop counter, technically speaking, could be a CIA agent planted because the next person we see pick up the phone is the guy in the car who we turn out to be the CIA agent. But I agree with you. It seemed like, especially in the first viewing, I watched it four times for this podcast, that everybody was in on it. But I think a couple of those people could be CIA, but... I don't think we're supposed to be taking that as what I'm saying. I think we're supposed to be taking it as what you're saying. Yeah, but do you guys not both agree that one of the Bond tropes is 
this, everybody's in on it, and it's always the world against him, whether the mysterious millionaire owns the Las Vegas police or the photographer on the island is trying to get James Bond's photo. Everybody's always in on it. Sure, I recognize that, yes, you want to have twists, you want to have surprises. I wanted to believe that the nice cabbie that picked him up and took him to Harlem was going to be an ally, was going to be the new quarrel and not going to pick up the CD and radio his friends and tell him what's happening. I'm sorry, he reminded me way too much of the guy from Total Recall. I knew he was evil from the moment they got in that cab. (laughs) I got four mouths to feed. I did like when he showed up again later in the movie. Was it New Orleans when he showed up again? I thought that was a really nice touch. There's only one cabbie in the whole U.S. (laughs) And then they both speak English. (laughs) I think I would be a lot happier if, say, Rosie didn't end up to be cowed into working for Kananga. She is a CIA agent. This is her second assignment. After Baines got killed, she's been assigned to Bond and theoretically going to watch over him and protect him. But they keep hanging voodoo amulets and putting hats on beds and scaring her into leading Bond into their clutches. And I love that line. It's just a hat belonging to a very small man of limited means who lost a fight with a chicken. Come on, that's funny. (laughs) That's funny. Maybe it's the delivery of Roger Moore with it. Yeah, but, you know, I felt like this was probably a hot-button issue, right? Bond is going to get with a black woman. That had to have been a big deal. And they do kind of pull back. We don't see a kiss. Actually, Stuart, I think we do see them make out a little bit on the beach before she gets killed. (laughs) Yes, before she gets killed, she does get kissed. Okay, we see them up close. She threatens to take a cyanide pill if he keeps using his charms. But I wish Rosie had been the Bond girl, is what I'm saying. When you compare to Solitaire, I'd much rather that Solitaire have been the first girl. She was the one that I wanted to see live through the end. I thought that she was funnier. I thought that she had more life to her. She was a little less stilted than Solitaire. But you do like Solitaire as a character in this movie, I hope. Because I really like Solitaire as a character in this movie and what they do with her in this movie and her working off Roger Moore. I actually enjoyed Jane Seymour quite a lot. It's starting a new tradition with Bond girls. I felt like the Bond girls of the 60s were pretty and kind of vacuous. They didn't have a whole lot of personality at all. And what I remember about these Moore girls, and really the woman that was in the last movie, Diamonds Are Forever, is they're kind of dingbats. And that's sort of enjoyable in a way. I think it's kind of amusing that we're expected to believe that this girl is a virgin and that once Bond's magic penis comes into play, she is powerless and transformed and no longer psychic if she ever was and, you know, is now wanting lessons from him. I mean, all of that's kind of amusing. I can't say that I loved Solitaire. I loved Solitaire. I did. I like her arc. I like that... She sleeps with him, not just because he's got this irresistible attraction, but because she feels it's her destiny because the cards tell her so. And that by giving in to sex with him, it's costing her something. I mean, the fact is, in the 60s and 70s, despite the free love movement, by and large, the older audience is going to be a bit more puritanical, 
and a bit more disapproving of loose women. So to see here that the woman has a price associated with her casual sex. It's very horror movie. It's straight out slasher, really. It's like once you lose your virginity, you can be killed. I think what bothers me about Solitaire is that the character is written to be more silly than it's actually played. That Jane Seymour kind of plays it straight. But I couldn't help laughing. All these predictions. A man comes. He travels quickly over water. Violence. Destruction. I mean, this is kind of silly. Like, the idea that this heroin dealer is going to hang on every word of these very vague, barely telling you anything predictions. I, I think that they could have played this up for more amusement than they actually did. When she loses her virginity and some of her back and forth with Bond, I did like that. But her relationship with Kananga felt bizarre. I disagree. I think those scenes completely worked. I loved everything about it. I loved how the carol reading was going over the airplanes and Bond traveling. I loved the music underneath it. I thought they used it a incredibly effectively. And also, given the voodoo connection in this movie, I think that works in perfectly for this guy, considering he's a diplomat of this Caribbean island that very much has this presence of believability of people who believe in voodoo and this kind of art. Why wouldn't he? I think it works completely. He's already got a voodoo guy, though. He's got this barren one that comes back from the dead. He may be a zombie. I'm not entirely sure what the barren is, but I feel like he's already good with magic. He doesn't need this woman. This means something else to him. I didn't mind the way the voodoo was portrayed here. That said, to make it a bit more perfect, I would have preferred it to be a bit more ambiguous. James Bond has always had fantastical gadgets, but the introduction of true psychics, psychics who are so exact. When they say a man comes, I laugh because it reminded me of my own tarot reading. They're all just so vague and so generic. You read into it whatever you want to. But then when it got more and more specific and you realize that it's not just generic statements that could be interpreted when you realize she really is psychic and there really is some voodoo going on here. Do we realize that? I think that her predictions and her drawing of the cards pre-sex of course is far too accurate. There's no ambiguity to it and the fact that she loses it with the sex. I would have liked it to have been a little more ambiguous where there could be multiple readings. The way I see it there is one reading. Well yes and I'll I'll just go ahead and say it. I actually know how to read tarot. I, it was a hobby I learned when I was into my horror phase. I thought, oh, I want to be a fortune teller. It's really... It, it's not like this because you taught me. <laughs> it's very... Yeah, it, it is open to multiple interpretations. Turning over the death card does not mean someone is going to die. Turning over the lover card doesn't mean that person is going to be your lover. I, I recognize for movie language they need to make it simple and all of that, but I am not convinced by the end of this that she ever had psychic powers, only that Kananga believed that she did, and I found that kind of funny. Stuart, I would give you Baron Samdi, who we just talked about as he can't be killed, but when we go to the island way later in the movie, we see all the trap doors and all the mechanisms behind it all. I would say that even though he can't be killed, I think Kananga and Baron Samdi are using the power over these people to control them and utilizing their beliefs so they can control them. You know what I'm saying? So if you're saying something like that with a tarot card over Kananga in these scenes, I believe that later. 
but I don't believe it here. I, I was buying. Yeah, Kananga is using voodoo to keep all of his henchmen in line, but I wouldn't think that Kananga would be naive enough to believe Solitaire's line of bully. I mean, I, it's just kind of silly to me. I agree, but nonetheless, I believe the way this movie is telling it, Solitaire truly is psychic, as was her mother, and while most of what he's using is hoodoo, not voodoo, there is a bit of voodoo involved. I just couldn't take anyone seriously with that pony bob and dashiki on. I mean, her outfits, it was hysterical to me. She wasn't sexy to me. I gotta say that I didn't buy her as a love interest for anything more than information, which is what Bond used her for initially. It was sleep with her and then, all right, where's Mr. Big? Let's get down to it. I gave you what you wanted. Now give me what I want. I'm telling you, I was getting a lot of Eddie Murphy and Charlotte Lewis from Golden Child. Golden Child never crossed my mind. And I don't know, a few looks she gave us to the screen. I think she's very attractive. I actually dug her outfits. I thought it was over the top. But at the same time, we have very colorful outfits for a lot of the cast members in this movie. So I was going with it completely. I didn't question it once. And let me be clear. I'm liking over the top. Some of the bonds that I've really celebrated have been over the top. I just wanted her to kind of wink and smirk the way that Moore was. Moore got the joke. I'm not sure Jane Seymour did. But she was young here. This must have been one of her first roles. She, of course, would go on to do lots of years of TV, Dr. Quinn and such. But this is probably her debut. I think it said introducing Jane Seymour in the credits. Yeah. You talked about over the top. I think that's a great segue to talk about J.W. Pepper. Oh, boy. Okay, boy. The Southern Sheriff. Because if you're talking about over the top in the beginning of this movie, for me, over the top comes into play eh, about an hour and ten minutes into this movie. It's a section of the movie that completely goes off on a huge tangent, extremely broad comedy in the middle of a stunt sequence. Did you guys enjoy the J.W. Pepper sequences in this movie? The whole car chase in the South was reminding me already of Dukes of Hazard, And then when you bring in Boss Hog with some chaw in his mouth, I was really getting that vibe. And I'll say this, I really liked him at the beginning. I really was having a grand time when they speed past him and he thinks he's going after a speeder and it ends with the boat crashing into his car. Loved it. Mm -hmm. But... The joke goes too long. They keep him in too long. And it's one of those where the joke's funny, and then the joke's not funny. But then it became funny again when he's talking about his brother-in-law and the fast boat. And then it became unfunny again. There was way too much of him. He is like Pepper. A little bit can add some flavor. Too much can ruin your meal. (laughs) Arnie, I have exactly the same take on it. If they stopped him with the boats going over his head and the boat crashing in and maybe keep in the end scene when he talks about you a doomsday machine and having a reaction there but keep cutting back to all these cops this is pre-dukes of hazard this is pre-smokey and the bandit this is like the first time i can think of when this kind of character is on the screen but i had the same interpretation i think it all these great stunt work is going on is being undercut by this craziness that we have to keep coming back to 
Oh, and I understand that this is first. I'm thinking that this is where they got the idea. This isn't first. They did this in the last movie. I knew that there was a character like this. When we were talking about Diamonds Are Forever and the sheriff of Las Vegas was a fat cop that was lazy and making everyone else do it and acting like a rube, I'm like, I seem to remember this character being more prominent in the story. Well, he was just sort of the first one. He was sort of the blueprint for what they go full hog on here. I feel like they took that little bit and it wasn't enough for the director, Guy Hamilton, so he put it in this one. And I just feel like it's probably a Britishman's exaggerated amusement at the ugly American stereotype. I mean, I can take a joke, okay? This is what you think Americans are like, but it's not that funny to me. In fact, it was borderline painful by the end of it. I was also just kind of uncomfortable with the flippancy of the way he referred to the black people as boys. You know, I think now in this day and age, we've reached a point where seeing somebody do that isn't funny. It means something else when we see a Southern law enforcement harass black people and call them boys. Really? I got the feeling that he would have called anybody boy who was younger than him. Kind of like the Duke boys. I really... Oh, Arnie, no. Boy Uh, is borderline a racial epithet. And I, Stuart, I would agree with you, but when he says, are you some sort of doomsday machine at the end of this whole sequence to Roger Moore? He says, are you some sort of doomsday machine, boy? Right to Roger Moore. So I think you're right that that certainly has that connotation, but Arnie might have a good point here because he does say it to more than one person here. I'm just saying it didn't get me to chuckle harder. It, you know, I hated Hee Haw. What can I say? I've never liked this kind of stereotype. I do come from the South. I was born in the South. Maybe I'm overly sensitive about it. But I, to me, this feels kind of like a grotesque. But let's face it. Bond movies have always had grotesque characters of women, of, of blacks. They did the gays last time. I guess they can do the Southerns the same way. It, it is in keeping of Bond's kind of square, traditional character categorization and stereotyping of people, but this was my least favorite character in the movie. I'm right there with you as least favorite character. And I third that as well. Because of the themes of this movie and because of the characters in this movie and because the movie is going out of its way to positively show African Americans as much as possible. They did not want to show it negatively completely. We can discuss if they succeeded at that or not. But what I got a little bit off of this Southern character was, because they're trying to show more positive the African Americans, they wanted to make fun of Southern redneck white people. I'm not sure if that was on purpose or not, but it could be something they were trying to go for, but no one's talking about that in any of the commentaries or any of the background material. Did you guys pick up any of that when you were watching this movie? I didn't pick up that they were trying to avoid doing negative stereotypes, so I certainly didn't pick up that they decided the best alternative was equal opportunity offender. (laughs) Fair enough. I was just wondering if you guys picked that up or thought that at all, because at certain point to me, I was like, this is bordering on cartoon buffoonery. And I'm wondering if there's something going on here. I didn't get it 100 percent, but I was wondering if you guys did. You guys seem to pick up on some of that stuff more than I do in other podcasts. If you're saying that maybe they created this character in a way that maybe the black audience would laugh and see that as a target of their scorn, I could not say, but I do question whether you could say that this is an entirely 
positive portrayal of anybody. I mean, again, I think Ron works in broad strokes. I think his characterizations of women, of blacks, of any group or type tend to fall into the hard stereotype. He's just not very progressive. So eh, it is what it is. If they tried... Good on them for trying, but trying and succeeding are two different things. Even though none of us like the Pepper guy in this boat sequence, a lot of these stunts in this boat sequence are absolutely fantastic. And one of the hallmarks of the Roger Moore era, especially for me as a Bond fan, is that the stunt work was amped up a lot. And we're just going to see more and more fantastic stunts as we keep going into this retrospective series. But here we have a lot of great stunt work going on. And it's a shame that I had to put up with a lot of this cop stuff in between some fantastic boat work. This is the first James Bond movie we've reviewed that I have no complaints about any of the effects work, any of the stunt work, any of the scenes. There was no blue screen that I could tell and that makes me very happy. Well, good. Yeah, no, uh, technically, I think that a lot of the action scenes, they pull them off here. There's not too many. I do feel like the boat one is the best one. Instead of big, broad action, they play a lot with wackiness, like scarecrows that shoot guns or a pimp car that has a gun in its rearview mirror and shoots people. I, there's not a whole lot of chases, as it were, but there's a lot of gadgetry. There's a lot of secret layers. I mean, every time he goes into one in these filet of soul restaurants the wall flips around or the table falls beneath it's it made me laugh i was like is he gonna go everywhere and do this you know like how some people like go to hard rock and collect a t-shirt from everyone around the world like will he just keep going to filet of souls and like which trap door will i fall down now i don't know it was fun but i do feel like it is a movie that works almost like a mechanism, like gadgets, like trap doors and mechanical things are always opening and closing and whirling around. And that magic watch solves almost every problem. Everything but that boat. I liked the plane sequence, and I liked how jokey it was, but at the same time, it was self-contained, it was short, so they had a lot of jokes with that old woman who was <laughs> that wonderful face, but then they have cars jumping over planes. I forgot about that old woman. Pepper is my second least favorite character. I like her. I think that she's all that you needed. You, we only needed one American that didn't get the joke, and this lady that was here for for a flight lesson and Bond impersonates her instructor and takes her on a crazy plane ride. Well, we know that this is almost a Pink Panther gag, but do I enjoy that? Sure. I think that's all the comedy action that we needed. We didn't need Pepper if you're going to do this lady. Kill one or the other. I do feel like this screenplay is littered with doing it five times when they should have only done it once. There's a lot of overlap and redundancy in characters, supporting characters, how they go about everything. And this was a scene that I felt like they needed to cut this one or cut a J.J. Pepper out of the boat chase. It's, you know what it's like? It's like Return of the Jedi. It peppers in all these wonderful action sequences so they make us try to forget there's not actually any plot going on until much later in the movie. I feel like there's a lot of animal attacks in this. Not only are there a lot of henchmen, there's a lot of beasts attacking James Bond. You know, you got the snake that comes at him in the bathroom, and then several people are tied to a post and attacked with snakes. You got the crocodiles and the alligators. You got sharks when we finally get to the lair at the end. I feel like they're letting too many of these Animal Kingdom move in on what all these henchmen could be doing. <laughs> I mean, you got great henchmen here. You got the Baron, this 
really cool kind of in the background character. I'm waiting for his big moment. It really doesn't come in the end. You don't need Solitaire and the Baron. You need only one voodoo guy. But Baron is so much cooler than Solitaire, and I don't want to see James Bond get with the Baron. <laughs> <laughs> Love his laugh. Love his laugh. Seven up. <laughs> Seven Up! That's where I've seen him before. That's right. Oh, yeah. He sold Seven Up. I couldn't think of it. I know that he played Punjab in that awful Annie movie. That was it. And I can't believe I that was an African American. I really thought that was an Indian in Annie. And here he's in white face. He's just f***ing with all of our racial stereotypes. <laughs> I haven't seen that movie since theaters in 1980, but I thought it, my memory is it was an Indian. I thought it was an Indian, too, and I saw it in the theaters, too, but I haven't thought about that movie since I saw it, Arnie. Furiously, why did you pull that one? I didn't realize the same guy. Jeffrey Holder is a, quite a famous dancer, the yada yada. I know him from here. I know him from 7-Up. I love his laugh, too. I love his presence. This guy is huge. And what a fun guy. He's just having so much fun in this movie. But do we need two giant baddies? That's the thing that got me is one has a fake arm and the other is a voodoo priest, but they seemed almost of the same type. There wasn't enough voodoo priestness to him. I mean, yeah, every so often you'd have a snake bite someone on the neck just to make a point, but I almost wish that they'd gone a different way with one of the two. Well, actually, Arnie, because they're trying to have this whole Kananga and Mr. Big dual personality thing, it's probably why they had two different characters. This guy actually could have played, no offense to Yafet at all, but he probably could have played Mr. Big. He's certainly bigger and, and more imposing, and I, he could have gotten away with being the whole bad guy. All I'm saying is I feel like this movie would be a whole lot better if they had been more judicious and pruning and editing what they had on the page. So many animal attacks, so many henchmen hopping around to so many different places. I'm just not sure that it requires the level of busyness that they have going on here. They're not confident in the story that they're telling. And I feel like slow down and we'll savor what you're giving us. I disagree. I like the pacing. I like the fact that it doesn't slow down and it doesn't get boring. And while, yes, I did scratch my head a little bit by the time we get to the shark attack at the lair at the end, I'm like, <laughs> okay, but... It was fun to watch. I love the alligator attack and the pitfall Harry escape. I love the boat chase and the car rides, even though they go on for a long time. I like the snake attack in the bathtub, although James Bond seemed more of a shower man to me. (laughs) So I was having so much fun in this movie that the looseness of the script was more of an asset because in a comedy, and I feel this plays as much as comedy as action, you get that kind of looseness in exchange for fun. And I'm having that fun. I think when you have the plane sequence with the old lady in the plane, and you have the stunt with the whole thing there, and then you have the Sergeant Pepper thing right afterwards, that was kind of redundant. You actually have a self-contained funny action sequence. You don't need to add that stuff into the boat chase. But the real issue here is, though, and you guys are saying it's a loose script, that people on all these commentaries were saying how great this script was. And I'm scratching my head when I'm hearing them say this because I don't see that. I actually think you can cut out the entire New Orleans sequence of this movie and the movie would not be hurt from it at all. Yes, we missed this fantastic stunt work of the alligators and the plane sequence 
and the boat chase. But if you think about it plot-wise, you can explain that away with one line saying it goes through New Orleans up through the filet of soul restaurants to New York, and the entire New Orleans sequence can be cut out of the movie because it has nothing to do with the plot at all. I'm with you, Brock. We never should have left the island. Once it goes to San Monique, we should have stayed there and never gone back to America. I like the New Orleans setting, though. I like that for the voodoo more than this fake country that they made up in the Caribbean. Did he go to all these places because there were three different hits? Like he had to investigate the New York murder, the San Monique murder, and the New Orleans murder? Exactly. If so, that wasn't clear because it seemed to me he went to investigate the New York murder, got outmanned, and was like, well, screw it. I'm going to the islands. <laughs> yeah, I think it would have been fine to have all three places if he had gone from New York to New Orleans, and then the island. That would be illogical. If he had chased the restaurants through and followed that through line, if he had actually followed the heroin back to its source of origin, fine. But once you find a poppy field, going to a restaurant in New Orleans is an anticlimax. Agreed. And they actually say the only reason he's going is to investigate the murder in the movie. I like your idea, Stuart. I think if they reordered the sequences, it actually might work. I just thought of... Yeah, I just feel like there's something that was decided in the editing room or the script writing stage that really hurt this movie. But I'm not having a bad time. You know, we are in America, and I do enjoy the America bit. So my theory is proving wrong. This one's going okay. But the final fight, as I mentioned with the sharks, left me a bit cold. The introduction of the shark gun, the watch... After being a magnet for so long, I completely forgot if we were ever told it was also a buzzsaw. We were not told. It was a surprise. Okay, that's a cheat. <laughs> and so while I had a great ride up till there, the ending, it felt abrupt. I think it felt like Batman. You guys mentioned Batman 66 to me. That whole magnet helping him defeat the villain while he's being lowered into a shark tank very much feels like the cliffhanger at the end of a Batman episode. To me, it doesn't work at all. It's They certainly set it up clearly for us in the movie. The word I came up with was lame. No shark tank. You have crocodiles and alligators. Make it a, a crocodile and alligator tank. I just, again, too many animals. Make a choice. Just don't do everything here. I feel like they should have never been dangling over a pit of sharks. Also, Bond puts that pellet in his own mouth and shoves it in Mr. Big's mouth to make him blow up. Obviously, it made Mr. Big swallow it, and that's what made it trigger. But to kill him... With this gun in that way, felt unearned. If they could get away with the magnetic watch, because they set it up plenty of times in the movie, and it didn't work the last time we tried to use it, it works here. I agree with Arnie, it's a complete cheat. But at the same time, it's unsatisfying to do away with this villain in that way. Because I don't understand what him blowing up like a balloon has anything to do with his character throughout the movie and what the connection is there. He's Mr. Big. Yeah. He gets big. As Bond puts it, he had an inflated sense of self. You know, ha, ha, ha. It's a pun. It's a joke. Yeah, then it fell flat on me. It blew up in my face because I didn't, I didn't make that connection. This is the one part that I remembered. I was like, live and let die. This is the one where, the guy, where Yafet turned into a giant helium balloon, right? You're like, this is the one <laughs> that I'm just like, I remember this. And I'm like, how is he going to do it? All the way to the end, I'm like, how is he going to turn into a balloon? I'm sure he's going to do this. And yeah, they pull out this. This is a shark gun. This is literally how you kill a shark, inflating it with air. I was going to ask you. I, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd been shark hunting. I have No, I don't know. He shoots the cow 
couch and it inflates. I thought that was cool. I'm like, we should have had more fun with this gun. If there's a gun like this, I want a whole movie of somebody inflating things. <laughs> like gotcha with a shark gun. Gotcha. Wow. Remember that movie with oh, yes, Anthony yes, Edwards? Yes. Must I dust that off too? I'm like, wow, Annie and Gotcha in one podcast. I mean, what are we going to do next time? <laughs> and then, since it's Guy Hamilton, we have to have a coda with the henchman on a moving vehicle. And this time, it's a train. And I understand what they were going for, the one last kind of scare thing that worked so well in Russia with Love with Rosa Klebb. This one just didn't work for me as well as the other ones. This one kind of felt tacked on and superfluous. Well, he's just repeating a formula at this point. This director really seems to cite rubbish sheriffs in power. He likes to have these false endings where, yeah, last time it was the gay dudes on the boat and Goldfinger on the plane. It is starting to feel like his style. It was so fresh in Goldfinger. I do feel like it's running a little thin now. If for nothing else, we get the wonderful Jeffrey Holder laughing at the screen to end the movie because of that sequence, which arguably could be worth it, because what a great way to end the movie with him laughing. I was stunned. Did the bad guys win? Did, like, he really can't die. Like, Bond gets a fight in with him. He comes out of a grave. They shoot him in the head. I go, well, that's a robot. They have a robot that leads the voodoo ceremony, and then the real <laughs> one comes out, and they throw him in the coffin full of snakes. I'm like, all right, he's dead. I'm not thinking he's coming back. To in the movie with Voodoo Man riding on the front of the train laughing. What's going to happen now? I took it as a porky pig. That's all, folks. <laughs> Was he really there on the train? He's laughing. He's a skull. Is he a ghost? Is he unkillable? It's just an exclamation point. I think we'll have to have more discussions about zombies next week when we start our donation series. Nice. Nice, nice tie-in. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think also when you have him laughing and then you have the theme music come right at the end, it's a great button to the end of the movie. Him laughing, his smile turns into a skull, and you got the dong, dong one more time with the live and let die theme. This was, of course, the w other thing that I remembered about the movie, the song, and more specifically, the credits, how girls would turn into skulls, live and let die, boom, it had me in giggling fits. I was so overjoyed as a kid. This was my favorite part of the movie, was watching those credits at the time. And I got to say, as a connoisseur of the Bond theme songs, this is the only one that comes close to matching Goldfinger. This is a great song. This is a great song. I did not appreciate it as a teenager, but I'm not a Beatles fan. I'm lukewarm on McCartney's solo stuff. This ain't Beatles. This is Wings. Nobody likes Wings, but this one <laughs> rocks. Oh, come on. Band on the Run. I love Band on the Run. And nothing else. A jet sucks. <laughs> <laughs> And Live and Let Die. Yeah, Live and Let Die. It's such a strange song. It has so many tempo changes. It goes to so many different places. Like in the middle, they got that calypso. What does it matter to you? I'm like, this. how did this even fit into the song? But it's, it's surprising. I wouldn't have thought McCartney would have been able to come up with this, quite honestly. What this tells me is that McCartney had a bigger hand in writing A Day in the Life than I would have suspected. Because that's what it reminded me of with all the different types of music. And that's why when I was 16, it was too 
odd for me. But once I got into my 20s and things, I have this and the Guns N' Roses version of this in heavy rotation in my car. I agree. This feels like a linen. Yeah, I actually think of Bohemian Rhapsody more with the two sections and the Let Die to this one. And I love this song as well, but I always, as a teenager, listened to the Guns N' Roses version more than I listened to this one. But as I've gotten older, I find myself enjoying this one much more. I also, Stuart, have to agree with you. The way they used it in the opening sequence here was just fantastic. I really enjoyed the playfulness of it. And I really liked how they used the bong, bong throughout the whole movie. John Barry didn't score this. George Martin did, who, of course, has the association with the Beatles and Paul McCartney. And the whole movie, I think, musically feels so different than what we've had before that this time I felt it was, at times, really refreshing. I think it really worked. And they brought the bong theme in with the chord progressions, and then they had the big bong, bongs. I really enjoyed the music throughout this movie. I have to agree. I think that one of the things Live and Let Die does is works well as a rock song to listen to, but the sweeping orchestrations work also as score music. And when combined with the James Bond theme, I like it as it plays throughout the entire movie, except for that like disco version we get at Filet of Soul that one time. That's the only version of the song that grates me. I'm down with that one too, but that one's the one that tipped me off to say they must have heard the song before they started filming. They must have gone to McCartney first before they were shooting if they have a character on screen singing it. Yeah, nothing on the DVD or Wikipedia has that. But I did read that since McCartney's fee was so large that they couldn't afford to bring a real composer in, so they had George Martin do the score. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Live and Let Die? Stuart. Not bad. I didn't remember this being one of the good ones, to be quite honest. It wasn't a childhood favorite beyond the credit sequence and the girls exploding into skulls. I don't think that I really took away a lot from it. But coming back through an adult, having seen a lot of blaxploitation, loving the French connection, seeing them try to ape it now in the James Bond, I think it's fun. I think that this movie barely holds together and it has a lot of redundancies that I think make the difference between a pretty good Bond adventure and a great one. Had they been more wise in the pre-production, they would really have, I think, one of the stronger ones. But this is not bad. Moore's coming out of the gate looking pretty good, and there is enough little moments for me to enjoy. Even with J.J. Pepper, I'm going to give this a mild recommend. Arnie. Oh, yeah. Recommend. I'm so glad because this was kind of a litmus test because I'll admit, as Stuart said earlier, I was probably now really understanding how Stuart did feel around the time of Blade and Elektra because we're not even halfway through the bonds, but my recommend level is below 50%. I didn't want to go through the next many months that way, but my memory was loving live and let die and i was scared to death that i would go back and my memories would just be completely wrong and this would be right there with some of these other bond films we've watched but no i have a great time watching this movie it is a fun action movie i am so excited for this roger moore era we're about to start reviewing because this is up there with from russia with love this may be my favorite bond movie so far in this retrospective if it isn't it is number two only two from russia with love recommend 
This one gets a weak recommend from me only because I like a lot of things in it. The second half of the movie just does not work for me at all. And it got to the point with Pepper and the boat chase where I actually started questioning everything else I was watching. The movie's composited so poorly together, especially in the second half, it just falls underneath its own weight. But the thing is, even though in the second half I'm not very happy with it plot-wise or where we're going, how much we're wasting time, I'm loving the stunt work and I'm loving the action scenes. And I'm loving Roger Moore in this movie. I like the jokes in this movie. So I really don't have a strong enough reason not to recommend it because so many different elements of it work. And the bottom line is, for the majority of the movie, I was having fun watching it. But it's not one of my favorite James Bond movies, and after watching it with you guys, this is going to be near the bottom of the list for me, as far as the ones I liked. But there is a lot of good stuff here, and so you can enjoy it. But a weak, weak recommend from me. And Brock, I think I'm similar with you. It isn't when I think about a really good James Bond, when I think about From Russia With Love, Goldfinger, You Only Live Twice, it doesn't hold a candle to it. But for a franchise that's eight episodes in, it's a lot better than Diamonds Are Forever. I just think that it holds together better as what James Bond is supposed to be, which is an action film. It's supposed to be exciting, it's supposed to be daring, and it's supposed to be fun. And I think this movie has a better job of doing that, largely because special effects had improved so greatly, but also largely because of the script and the star's performance. So I disagree with you both that when you say some of these others are better and this is a weak Bond, this is not Bond watered down. To me, Bond here is shaken, not stirred. Well, I think the important thing is we're all saying we're going to let this one live (laughs) next week. We're going to let it die. We were starting the donations. This is the last two a week of Bond for a while. We're going down to one Bond a week on Tuesdays. Next Friday, we kick up our donation series with the Romero Dead. That's right. Jacob Stewart and I are going to the grave and digging up all of the Living Dead series. I'm kind of a newbie on this one. I gotta say, I saw them all as a kid, or at least the formative first ones, but I don't remember them. This is totally going to be new for me. I can't recall many details, so I'm the newbie. Now, because Romero did six films instead of five in this Living Dead series so far, we're doing things a little bit differently this time. What we're saying is because there's six episodes, it's a minimum donation of $10 to get all six Romero donations, but a suggested donation of 15 so that we can keep bringing you Now Playing. And again, we always ask, please think about these podcasts we've been bringing you not once a week, but twice a week for most of the summer. James Bond and Spider-Man all twice a week so far, bringing out so much content this year. Think of all those shows when you donate. We don't sell podcasts. These podcasts are a thank you to donors who donate the 15 minimum requested donation. And if you go 25, they're going to get even more shows. Beyond the six Romeros, they're getting the three official remakes. The official 1990 Night of the Living Dead. The 2004 big blockbuster. I think it's the highest grossing of them all. Dawn of the Dead. And its sequel, Day of the Dead, from 2008. Yep, so for 10 minimum 
15 requested, you get all the Romero films, 25 or more donation, and you also get the official remakes, the sanctioned ones. And we talk about some of the unsanctioned ones as well, because there's a reason why there's so many unsanctioned, and we will discuss that in our first Night of the Living Dead podcast next Friday. We'll have the banner up at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. Donations are open right now. You can donate and get Night of the Living Dead as soon as it's out. And as always, our donation podcasts are only available for a limited time. These go in the vault on Halloween. October 31st will be the last day to donate for them. And speaking of the vault, also for the first time, we're opening the vault a little bit. You can find out all the details. On our homepage is a frequently asked questions. Check that out. And if there's any further questions, feel free to drop us an email through the homepage at nowplayingpodcast.com. And while you're there, be sure to click on the link to our forums where you can discuss this podcast or those podcasts or any of our podcasts with other listeners like yourself. Now Playing will return with the man with the golden gun. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing James Bond Retrospective Series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. You'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. Madame, what about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. 
This is Brock. James Brock. Or should I say, my name is Brock. James Brock. Co-host of Now Playing. That's the worst Roger Moore in the history of his Roger Moore. <laughs> Not going to argue that. <laughs> and the unkillable voodoo priest Baron Semendi. Semedi? I think Smeddy. Smeddy? It's Samedi. It's French for Saturday. The claw-handed T.D. The claw-handed Teehee Johnson and the unkillable voodoo priest Baron Sandy. Samedi? Samedi. Samedi. You're absolutely right. And by the way, Stuart, I'm keeping track of how many times you jump in with information I was about to share and score two already on this podcast. <laughs> it's a, you're doing it constantly on this retrospective series. And I'm like, wow, he knows a lot of the stuff. That's great. I'm having trouble understanding how you didn't see it. It's Felix Leiter who can't figure it out. Well, I put me there with Felix. I just... <laughs> yeah, you're the only two, Arnie. You and Felix are the only ones that didn't know this. But that's cool. They're like, as the Avengers becomes the highest grossing movie of all time, they're like... All right. Especially since before Iron Man, nobody had heard of Iron Man or Thor. Yeah, but the pool has already got piss in it. I mean, Green Lantern. That's <laughs> not going to get too much in there. <laughs> Superman Returns. You yeah, but, I mean, you can't count. Superman Returns, everyone has forgotten. They will live or die by Man of Steel. And this Batman's not coming in it, so... Yeah, there's of- no way. You can't even put Christian Bale. Could you imagine Christian Bale on the same screen as Ryan Reynolds? No. I Could didn't. you imagine those two characters trying to interact? No. <laughs> <laughs> He wouldn't share the same screen. He wouldn't be in the same shots as him. He's like, who is this asshole? <laughs> <laughs> Send him back to Canada. Because he'll suffer fools lightly. He Ryan wouldn't. Reynolds will pants Christian Bale, and Christian Bale will f- kill him. Yes. <laughs> I, w- I would like that movie, actually. <laughs> I'm down. <laughs>